Uh, we've got a bit of a long passage today. Um, it's from Leviticus chapters 6, verse 8 to 7, verse 38. The Lord said to Moses, Give Aaron and his sons his command. These are the regulations for the burnt offering. The burnt offering uh, is to remain on the altar hearth throughout the night till morning, and the fire must be kept burning on the altar. The priest shall, priest shall then put on his linen, linen clothes with linen undergarments next to his body and shall remove the ashes of the burnt offering that the fire has consumed on the altar and place them on the altar. Then he is to take off these clothes and put on others and carry the ashes outside outside the camp to a place that is ceremonially clean. The fire on the altar must be kept burning. <clears throat> it must not go out. Every morning, the priest, is to, the priest is to add firewood and arrange the burnt offering on the fire and burn the fat of the fellow fellowship offering on it. The fire must be kept burning on the altar continuously. It must not go out. These are the regulations for the grain offering. Aaron's sons are to bring it before the Lord in front of the altar. The priest is to take a handful of fine flour and oil together with all the incense on the grain offering and burn the sorry, grain offering and with and burn the memorial portion on the altar as an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Aaron and his sons shall eat the rest of it, but it is to be eaten without yeast in a holy place. They are to eat in the court eat it in the courtyard of the tent of meeting. It must not be baked with yeast. I have given, I have given it as their share of the offerings made, made to me by, uh, made to be by fire. Like the sin offering and the guilty offering, it is most holy. Any male descendant uh, of Aaron may eat it. It is his regular share of the offerings made to the Lord by fire for the generations to come. Whatever touches them will become holy. The Lord also said to Moses, this is the offering Aaron and his sons are to bring to the Lord on the day he is anointed. A tenth of an ephah or fine flour as a regular grain offering. Half of it in the morning and half of it in the evening. Prepare it with oil on a griddle. Bring it Bring it well mixed and present the grain offering broken in pieces as an aroma pleasing to the Lord. The son who is to succeed him as anointed priest shall prepare it. It is the Lord's regular share and is to be burned completely. Every grain offering of a priest shall be burned completely. It must not be eaten. The Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron and his sons, these are the regulations for the sin offering. The sin offering is to be slaughtered before the Lord in the place the burnt offering is slaughtered. It is most holy. The priest who offers it shall eat it. It is to be eaten in a holy place in the courtyard of the tent of meeting. Whatever touches any of the flesh will become holy. And if any of the blood is splattered on a garment, you must wash it in a holy place. The clay pot the meat is cooked in must be broken. But if it is cooked in a bronze pot, the pot is to be scoured and rinsed with water. Any male in a priest's family may eat it. It is most holy. But any sin offering his blood is brought into the tent of meeting to make atonement 
and the holy place not, must not be eaten. It must be burned. These are the regulations for the guilt offering, which is the most holy. The guilt offering is to be slaughtered in a place where the burnt offering is slaughtered and its blood to be sprinkled against the altar on all sides. All its fat shall be offered. The fat, the fat tail and the fat that covers the inner parts, both, kisne, both kidneys with the fat on them near the loins and the covering of the liver, which is to be removed from the kidneys. The priest shall burn them on the altar as an offering made to the Lord by fire. It is a guilt offering. Any male in the priest's family may eat it, but it must be eaten in a holy place. It is most holy. The same law applies to both the sin offering and the guilt offering. They belong to the priest who makes atonement with them. The priest who offers a burnt offering for anyone may keep it tied for himself. Every grain offering baked in an oven or cooked in a pan or on a griddle belongs to the priest who offers it. And every grain offering, whether mixed with oil or dry, belongs equally to all the sons of Adam. These are the regulations for the fellowship offering, a person may present to the Lord. If he offers it as an expression of thankfulness, then along with his thank offering, he is to offer cakes of bread made without yeast and mixed with oil. Wafers made without yeast and spread with oil and cakes of fine flour, well, med, well kneaded and mixed with oil. Along with his fellowship offering of thanksgiving, he is to present an offering with cakes of bread made with yeast. He is to bring one of each, uh, each kind as an offering, a contribution to the Lord. It belongs to the priest who sprinkles the blood of the fellowship offerings. The meat of his fellowship offerings of thanksgiving must be eaten on the day it is offered. He must leave none of it until morning. If, however, his offering is the result of a vow or is a free will offering, the sacrifice shall be eaten on the day he offers it. But anything left, anything left over may be eaten on the next day. Any meat of the sacrifice left over till the third day must be burned up. If any meat of the fellowship offering is eaten on the third day, it will not be accepted. It will not be credited to the one who offered it, for it will be impure. The person who eats any of this will be held responsible. Meat that touches anything ceremonially unclean must not be eaten. It must be burned up. As for other meat, any ceremonially clean, anyone ceremonially clean may eat it. But if anyone who is unclean eats the meat of the fellowship offering belonging to the Lord, that person must be cut off from his people. If anyone touches something unclean, whether human uncleanliness or an unclean animal or any unclean detestable thing, and then eats any of the meat of the fellowship offering belonging to the Lord, that person must be cut off from his people. The Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, do not eat any of the fat of cattle, sheep, or goats. The fat of an animal found dead or torn by wild animals may be used for any other purpose, but you must not eat from it. Anyone who eats uh, the fat of an animal from an offering by fire may be made to the Lord. Uh, sorry. 
Anyone who eats the fat of an animal from which an offering by fire may be made to the Lord must be cut off from his people. And wherever you live, you must not eat the blood of any bird or animal, bird or animal. If anyone eats blood, that person must be cut off from his people. The Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, Anyone who brings a fellowship offering to the Lord is to bring part of it as his sacrifice to the Lord. With his own hands, he is to bring the offering made to the Lord by fire. He is to bring the fat together with the breast and wave the breast before the Lord as a wave offering. The priest shall burn the fat on the altar, but the breast belongs to Aaron's, Aaron and his sons. You are to give the right thigh of your fellowship offering to the priest as a contribution. The son of Aaron who offers the blood and the fat of the fellowship offering shall have the right thigh as his share. When the fellowship offerings of the, Israelite, of the Israelites I have taken the breast that is waved and the thigh that is presented and have given them to Aaron the priest and his sons as their regular share from the Israelites. This is the portion of the offerings made to made to the Lord by fire that were allotted to Aaron and his sons on the day that they were presented to serve the Lord as priests. On the day they were anointed, the Lord commanded that the Israelites give this to them as their regular share for the generations to come. These then are the regulations for the burnt offering, the grain offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering, the ordination offering, and the fellowship offering which the Lord gave Moses on Mount Sinai on the day he commanded the Israelites to bring their offerings to the Lord in the desert of Sinai. Well, it's good to see you all, friends. Now, any of you guys like barbecues? Yeah? Of course you do. I still remember some of the church barbecues we did together back in the pre-COVID days when parties were allowed. And some of those barbecues, well, they were pretty spectacular. And we have to admit, when done well, the smell of barbecued meat is pretty appealing to most people, isn't it? And the way that the sacrificial system under the law of Moses is described in the first seven chapters of Leviticus, you get the distinct impression that a lot of barbecuing was happening back then too. But at the same time, there were also particular rules about who could eat what, and that varied depending on the type of sacrifice involved. Well, recapping the different types of offering that we've seen so far, there's the burnt offering, the grain offering, The peace offering, which is also translated as the fellowship offering, but I'll talk about it as a peace offering. There's the sin offering and the guilt offering. All of these different types of offering symbolise different things, but taken together, they symbolise the need for us to give the totality of ourselves, including what we possess, up in the service of God. They also symbolise the great need that we have for a perfect sacrificial substitute to pay the ransom price on our behalf and how God wants us to be able to feast 
and celebrate in his presence as he provides for us. Well, let's have a look at these offerings individually. The total devotion of the worshipper to God is particularly symbolized through the burnt offering. Notice how in Leviticus chapter 6, verse 9, the burnt offering is to be totally burnt. It's to be burnt on the altar, and it says, all night until morning. Nothing was to be left except for the ashes of the sacrificial victim. We also know from chapter 7, verse 8, that the officiating priest got to keep the skin of the animal for himself. But apart from this, the whole of the sacrificial animal for the burnt offering had to be fully burnt upon the altar. And friends, this is a picture of total devotion to God. Such a sacrifice pleases God. It's treated by God as being holy. In fact, so holy was the burnt offering that, as we see in chapter 6, verses 10 and 11, the ashes of this offering had to be collected by the priest and taken outside the camp to a clean place where they would be disposed of. Now, to give ourselves fully over to God, which is what's symbolized in the burnt offering, ultimately, when you think about it, this actually means dying for God. That's the ultimate expression, isn't it, of giving ourselves fully over to God, we die for him. But there's a problem here. If we were to literally give up our life for God, what do you think? There is a problem, isn't there? Because once dead, we'd no longer be around to serve him. Like, what use is a dead servant? This is where the idea of the sacrificial substitute comes in, and it's quite handy, isn't it, here? The availability of a sacrificial substitute symbolises the total devotion of the person who brings that sacrifice while allowing that person to stay alive and to keep on serving God. It's a good solution, I think, overall. But what about the grain offering? The grain offering is similar to the burnt offering in symbolising devotion. But whereas the burnt offering symbolises the dedication of the worshipper personally to God, the grain offering symbolises the dedication of the worshipper's possessions to God. Everything that God gives us, we're supposed to use all that we have in his service. But once again, if we literally give everything to him, well, what's the problem here? If I give every single thing that I have to God, it's all kind of burnt on the altar, say, well, we're not going to have much after that, are we? And perhaps... We're not going to have anything at all following on from that to be able to give to God in the future. So the grain offering symbolises the giving of our all to God through the literal giving of a portion of that. Now, the grain offering basically involved offering up fine flour mixed with oil 
If it wasn't pre-cooked, then frankincense would be added in as well. As we see in chapter 6, verse 15, the priest would take a handful of the fine flour, some of the oil, and all of any frankincense present and offer this up as a memorial portion upon the altar to God. This would create a lot of smoke with a nice aroma, which symbolizes how offering up our best to God is something that pleases him. As chapter 6 verse 16 indicates, the rest of the grain offering was to be eaten by the male descendants of Aaron within the tent of meeting. This symbolizes God's provision for those who serve him and the family members of those who serve God too. You know, when it comes to giving our best to God, I reckon that sometimes we think we lose out somehow when we sacrifice things for God. But this is not how it works. What we give to God actually comes back as God provides for us and our family, which includes our spiritual family in Christ too. Keep in mind that the priest back then also represented the worshipper. So by the priest eating some of the sacrifice donated by the worshipper, in effect, the worshipper gets to eat it as well in a representative fashion. The requirement in chapter 6, verses 16 and 17, that the priests could only eat the remaining portion as unleavened bread brings to mind the first Passover at the time of the exodus from Egypt. In Deuteronomy 16, verse 3, unleavened bread is actually called the bread of affliction. Interesting term, isn't it? The bread of affliction. The use of unleavened bread reminded Israel of how they had left Egypt in a hurry and didn't have time to bake bread with leaven. Instead of nice, plump loaves, all they could make were pieces of flat bread. So in this way, unleavened bread functioned to remind Israel of the suffering that they had experienced in Egypt and also of how God had rescued them from slavery. You see, God provides in the midst of suffering. This truth was symbolised as the priests feasted on unleavened bread within the tabernacle. But what about the sin offering? Well, the sin offering symbolised for Israel how people's sins are forgiven when the perfect sacrificial victim dies in our place. In this way, the sin offering symbolises how Jesus would offer his life up as the ransom price to set God's people free from sin and death. The sin offering had four different versions, one for when the priest sins, one for when the whole congregation sins, one for the leader of the people, and one for general individuals. The sin offering for the priest and the whole congregation required the offering up of a bull. In this situation, 
the fatty parts of the bull were to be completely burnt upon the altar, and the rest of the bull would be burnt in a clean place outside the camp. The writer in Hebrews 13 verses 11 and 12 states that the burning of the rest of the animal outside of the camp symbolizes how Jesus suffered and died outside the gates of Jerusalem. However, the sin offerings for leaders and general individuals were a little bit different in that a goat or a sheep would be used and there wasn't the requirement of the sevenfold sprinkling of blood in the tent of meeting. And according to Leviticus chapter 6, verse 26 and also verse 29, this kind of sin offering could be eaten by the priests and their male family members, apart from the fatty parts that were to be offered up on the altar to God. So we see here, even with the sin offering, the priests got to eat some of the sacrificial animal when it was used to make atonement for leaders and general individuals. Once again, this eating symbolizes God's provision. Through the death of the perfect sacrificial victim, God's people, represented by the priests, get to eat in God's presence. And friends, it's important to note here that eating is used here as a symbol of life. And this is something that Jesus himself picks up on. This is why Jesus could say in John chapter 6, verses 53 and 54, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourselves. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. So you see here, as we feed upon Jesus, his life force energizes us and makes us live. And this was symbolized in the Old Testament sacrificial system. Now in relation to the guilt offering, in terms of who could eat from that particular offering, the rule was the same as for the sin offerings that could be eaten. The priests and their male family members could eat it, except for the fatty portions that were to be burnt on the altar. Well, what then should we think about when it comes to the fellowship offering or the peace offering, as I will call it here? Well, as the name suggests, peace offering, it symbolizes peace between God and those who worship him. The peace offering was the only offering that the worshipper bringing the sacrifice could eat. A thanksgiving peace offering used both unleavened and leavened bread. That's a bit of a surprise, isn't it? And it had to be completely eaten before the next morning. That would usually require lots of guests to help eat it all up but they had to be ceremonially clean in order to eat it. Like with any great feast, 
as they were munching down on this particular sacrifice and the provision that God had given, there would be a great feel of celebration in the air. Now, if it was a peace offering in connection with a vow or just a free will offering, then the worshipper was allowed an extra day to finish eating the meat of the sacrifice. And towards the end of Leviticus 7, we also see that some of the priests got to eat this sacrifice too. They got to eat the fatty breast or the right leg of the animal. In Leviticus chapter 7, verses 22 through to 27, we also see that in addition to these rules about those particular sacrifices, we get some general rules concerning what the Israelites were forbidden from eating. And in general, we've got two things that are mentioned here. They're forbidden from eating the fat of cows, sheep and goats, and also forbidden from consuming the blood of any animal. And it was serious if you broke these laws because breaking these laws would lead to the excommunication of the transgressor. But why were these things forbidden? Well, I think that fat was forbidden because that's the best part of the animal. We've seen that in the sacrifices already. The fat was burnt up. And this is the best part that had to be reserved for God. It created a nice aroma that pleased God. And blood was forgiven because only the blood of Jesus has the power to give true life. You know, back in those days, some people thought that, well, blood, it's the life force of the animal. If we consume blood, we will live. No, that's not how we're supposed to think about things. Under the old covenant, blood was forbidden to be eaten. But then why is it as we step across into the new covenant, we see Jesus calling upon us to eat his flesh and surprise of surprises to even drink his blood. That's surprising, isn't it? And actually shocking to an ordinary Jewish person. We can't consume blood. But here we have Jesus saying, no, it's my blood. It's my life given up for you that makes you live. So we are called upon to eat Christ's flesh and to drink his blood as we feed on him through faith. And as we do that, we will live. So overall, the different types of sacrifice symbolize different truths. But there's a bigger question that we need to ask here. And I think that is, why is it that we have these laws? Sure, they symbolize particular things, but in particular, why is God into sacrifice? Well, I think the answer to this question is actually quite profound when you think about it. It actually goes to the heart of who God is. You see, sacrifice involves giving up something belonging to us for the sake of someone else. And this is the kind of God that God is. He gives of himself to the world that he's created. And in particular, we see this ultimately, don't we, with Jesus dying on the cross. 
Jesus dying on the cross fulfills the symbolism inherent in the old covenant sacrifices and constitutes the supreme instance of God giving his very own self for the sake of the world. And as God sacrifices himself, he puts himself forward as the ultimate model for how we are to sacrifice ourselves in serving God and one another. As Jesus himself has said, the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give up his life, to offer up his life as a ransom for many. Friends, this is the God of sacrifice, the God who gives of himself for the life of the world. And this God of sacrifice also calls upon us to sacrifice ourselves as well. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. God in Jesus is the ultimate living sacrifice, and he calls upon us to reflect this. A living sacrifice. Is that you? Let's pray. Now, Heavenly Father, we thank you that today we've gone through probably not an easy passage to read, and sometimes we can get lost in all the details of the Old Testament sacrificial system. But we thank you, Lord, that today we've been able to look at some of the symbolism behind those different types of sacrifice and to see how you call upon us to give of ourselves totally to you. But as we do so, we know that we benefit from the perfect sacrificial victim who is Jesus, who gives his life as a ransom so that we might be bought from death to belong to life. And at the same time, we can see, Lord, particularly through the peace offerings, this idea of celebration with your abundant provision and this peace that we have with you. But, Lord, reflecting more deeply upon these things, as we've asked the question, why is it that you are into sacrifice? But we thank you that today we've been able to reflect upon that a little bit and to see, well, actually, sacrifice goes to the heart of who you are, the God who is constantly giving of himself, sacrificing himself so that others might live. No wonder that we see Jesus there giving up his life upon the cross because that is the type of God that you are. And, Lord, as we reflect upon the fact that you are a living sacrifice in Christ. We pray that you would help each one of us to look at our own lives and to see to what extent are we modelling ourselves on Jesus and offering up our bodies, offering up all of who we are as living sacrifices to you.
Lord, this is our spiritual worship. You have created us for this. We thank you for this reminder and we thank you for Jesus, the ultimate living sacrifice. We bring this prayer to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's time for Q&A. Um, so bring back over to Steve. And... So first, first question. So very interesting sermon. Uh, can you explain again why we're told to drink Jesus' blood? I didn't quite catch it for that person. Yeah, that's okay. I think there's a second question that follows that. It's very similar, isn't it? Uh, can yeah. you please explain why the animal blood was forbidden to drink? Yeah, we'll group yeah. that so we'll do all those together. Well, I think the idea is really what the Bible's getting at there or what God's getting at is that the ultimate life force that gives life to creation is Jesus and his sacrifice. And so really what's happening is it goes back to, if you have a look at Genesis 9, Genesis 9, the first few verses there are quite interesting to look at because that's when God forbids Noah and the descendants of Noah from eating the blood of animals. And I think it goes back. There was a, a, an ancient view and still held in some parts of the world today. You know, most people know, even in the ancient world, that we've got blood inside us and that blood keeps us alive. Well, to have more blood, what do you do? You consume the blood of other creatures. And that's a bit like Dracula, perhaps. I don't know if that's quite a good illustration. But, um, you know, through this you live. And there were some cultures who believed that. And so basically what God's saying, no, 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 that's not where life is found. That's not where life is found. Old Covenant Israel were told, do not consume blood because life is not found through that. But that is a truth that only applies until Jesus arrives, all right, because Jesus is the one whose life, whose blood, if you want to put it that way, whose blood gives life. Right? If you want to live, what do you need to do? Well, you do need blood, not the blood of bulls and goats and these kinds of things. No, you need the blood of Jesus. And so that's why Jesus, very surprisingly, and the Jews had trouble with this. You know, they were always told by Moses, do not consume blood. But here we get Jesus standing up in front of them saying, drink my blood, <laughs> obviously. And actually, it says in John 6 there that a lot of people ended up not following Jesus anymore because he said that. But they didn't get the point of it. The prohibition about not consuming blood was because blood, which gives life, was reserved for Jesus because he's the only one who can give life. Does that make sense? Mm. Right. So that prohibition was there in a sense to point to Jesus's blood as the only blood that gives life. If you have a look in uh, Genesis 9, verse 4 in particular, you can see that there's an equation between blood and life. Right, the uh, Moses was uh, sorry. Noah was told not to consume the life of the animal. In other words, the blood of the animal. There's this equation between blood and life. Ultimately, it's only Jesus' blood that gives life. Anyway, I hope that makes sense. It's a very interesting point that one. Yeah. Why is it that Jesus calls upon us to drink His blood? Mm-hmm. It's so that we might live. Obviously, we do that in a spiritual way, right? Not a physical way like Dracula might do, but you would do it in a spiritual way through faith. But hopefully we get the, the, the significance of that image. We need Jesus' blood in order to live. Yeah, awesome. 
Thanks for that. Uh, next question. Why could some sacrifices have yeast in it? Yes, I did mention how the peace offerings, right? You've got some unleavened bread there, but you've also got leavened bread as well. And I think why do we have this here? It's, it's probably, I think, really to do with what the peace offering symbolised. It symbolises the abundance of God's provision and celebration, all right? So it's almost like there's an exception here. We want all the best kind of foods that are available. So this plump bread is part of the party, if you want to put it that way, right? So it, it highlights this idea of celebration, right? Remember unleavened bread? It recalled the, what was the word again? The affliction, right? The affliction of being in Egypt. Well, when we participate in the peace offering or when the Israelites did that, in a sense, they're forgetting, they're forgetting affliction, and they're involved in celebration. I think that's probably the only explanation I can think of that makes sense of why was it that leavened bread, plump bread, was allowed in the peace offering. It's a time of celebration. Mm. Uh, next one. If the sacrifices was pointing to different aspects of Jesus' ultimate sacrifice for humanity, why is it only reserved for the Israelites? Okay, so I think this is probably getting at why did God only deal, in a sense, formally with the people of Israel during the Old Covenant age? Yeah. It's an interesting question, that one. Why did God narrow things down? I think ultimately it's probably got to do with Jesus is descended from Israel and there is this idea of the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who is Israel. There's this one seed who is Jesus. Um, the other thing that the Apostle Paul would say in relation to this question is that God's dealings with the people of Israel, they're there as a kind of illustration for the nations of the world. Where to learn the lessons of the people of Israel. You know, they had the word of God. They had the grace within the sacrificial system. They had... You know, the history of God saving them, but they didn't pay attention and make sure that they had God's word within their heart. And so the curses of the covenant came down upon them. So by dealing with one nation like this, God gives a lesson, you can say, to the nations of the world. The other thing that Paul would also say is there's a, a kind of time delay between the promises that God gave to Abraham and when Jesus comes. Okay, so in that time of delay, we have this idea of God using Israel as a lesson to the people of the world so that when Jesus comes, we might be able to see Jesus in the context of Israel and contrast Jesus with Israel. You know, Israel who didn't live in accordance with God's word, contrast that with Jesus. All right? We see all the wonderful promises that were given to Israel. We see them fulfilled in Jesus. So I guess ultimately this is going back to the question of, Right? Why was the law of Moses and the sacrificial system was just reserved to Israel back then? Well, it's basically there to help us appreciate Jesus better. I hope that makes sense. It's actually there to help us see more about who God is in dealing with people, what the problem of human sin is, so that when Jesus comes, we're meant to see him in the light of all these things and see how he's the solution. I think maybe they've frozen. Are they frozen back at HPCC there? It's that cold, is it, that they're frozen? 
Hey, but maybe John. Oh, like, well, should we? I guess we should wait for him. I don't know if they can hear us, but yeah, I don't know. Uh, I'm still hearing you fine. I think Sam. Yeah. Um, scrolling right. Uh, how many of us are online? Oh, they're back now. It seems. Oh, Looks like. You there now? You sort of froze for a while. You're on mute now. Oh. Can you hear us? Can you hear us? Yeah, yeah. Are you okay? Did you hear most of my answer then? Because you froze for a bit there. Yeah, we uh, our net cut off. I, I'm not too sure where we left off. Um, I'm not, did you finish your last point? I'm not too sure. Well, I don't know what you heard up to. So, But the idea was that through Israel and their problems, it's an illustration of the problems of the world and sin and all of that, we see Jesus as the solution in the context of everything that happened to Israel. So basically... This is what happened with Israel. It's there to help us appreciate God and his plan for salvation more. Okay. So that was my final point, yeah. Okay, yeah, fair enough. All right, thanks for that. Um, the next one, a uh, bit of a clarification question. So what is the difference between the guilt offering and sin offering? Would someone who is feeling guilty and not sinful offer a guilt offering only and vice versa? Uh, no, it's not quite that. It seems like the guilt offering is a little bit of a kind of subset, you could say, of the sin offering. Uh, so basically when, say, an individual sinned against any of the commandments in the law of Moses and they'd be required to present a sin offering, uh, but in particular situations, particularly when it involved um, making oaths or not keeping oaths or or not being a witness to a crime, things like that, or when you've ripped someone off and there can be restitution, you would use the, the guilt offering at that point. So a key part of the guilt offering, and I think the person who preached last week may have touched upon this, there's this idea of restitution mm. and often there'd be like 20% extra. So in a way, if you've ripped someone off, uh, you've, you've done the wrong thing, right? Um, but your guilt offering would be offered up as a sin offering, in effect, at that point. And you'd also uh, pay a kind of fine, which would compensate the person that you've, you've ripped off. So it's probably best to think about the guilt offering. Uh, it's probably not a good idea. We, we talk of it as, you know, we think if we feel guilty. It's not really talking about that. And in a way, it's just a different kind of sin offering. That's the best way of thinking about it. Uh, when perhaps the the amount of guilt can be measured in some way, in particular when there's restitution involved. Mm. So just think about it as a kind of subset of the, of the sin offering. Mm. All right, makes sense. Um, another one, do Jews still follow these offerings today? No, they don't because they don't have a temple. But if they did have a temple, like in Jerusalem, then I'm assuming the religious Jews, they would try to because they basically think that the law of Moses continues on as the word of God today, that it hasn't changed even though Jesus has come. Okay, so uh, there are actually some Jews who do want to try to rebuild the temple. The problem is it's actually a Muslim mosque located there at the moment. So, well, and some people do actually think, well, if Israel did try to do that, then probably World War III might start. So it's quite an ironic situation that, on this place where the temple once was in Jerusalem, we now actually have a Muslim mosque. Um, but, yeah, the dream of some Jews, the uh, ultra-Orthodox, if you want to put it that way, 
is to rebuild the temple and actually begin the priesthood again and these temple sacrifices. You can see through that they, they haven't gotten the idea that Jesus has replaced these things as the ultimate sacrifice that brings life. Oh, interesting. All right. Um, next, is there any link with the animal sacrifices in Leviticus with the first animal uh, God sacrifice for Adam and Eve to provide clothing for them? Oh, there's probably a little bit of a link in terms of God's provision, I would say. Remember how some of the sacrifices we said, particularly when the people are eating the sacrifice, whether it's the priest or the people get to eat it in the, in the peace offering. Uh, this is a picture of God's provision. Okay, so we can see there's a, probably a little hint, I'd say. I, I don't think we could say, in a sense, it's a sacrifice back then, um, but it's hinting at how God provides for his people. And um, we also get a little picture of through death there is life at that point, don't we, which ultimately will be fulfilled in Jesus. But it's only a little hint at that point, only a little hint. Hmm. Okay. And then I think our final question on Padlet will be, can you please explain about the priest and male of family members? Uh, uh, I don't know how this is uh, structured. Can have the meat of offering in sanctuary area. Why? Uh, so does it belong to priests who makes atonement? You mentioned about it relating it to Jesus. Yeah, it uses the language of uh, particular sacrifices here where part of the sacrifice belongs to the priest who's officiating at that point okay so for example burnt offering the skin of the animal belongs to that priest but he can then use it however he wants and so i guess when it comes to the skin of the burnt offering he might give that to his wife or whatever and she might turn it into clothes or or something like that um, so the priest who it belongs to can actually share it and i think that's what's happening so um, in some of the sacrifice, when it talks about the priest that it belongs to, if it's belonging to the officiating priest, then some of the portions of meat that are there are fairly significant. He might not necessarily, and keep in mind too that uh, the priest might be doing a lots of officiating. At least we know that in Jesus' day, what happened was the officiating priest would do it for the whole day, and then you know you get another priest doing it the next day. Back in the time of the old covenant, we don't have so many priests around. So who knows? You could be doing a full day every so many weeks. Who knows what the actual situation was? But, you know, you could be accumulating a fair bit of meat, if you want to put it that way. They didn't have fridges back then. What are you going to do with it? Well, it can be eaten. You share it. You share it with your brothers, your priestly brothers, your priestly family, in a sense. And, and it had to be eaten within the temple so this is a, this is just a picture of eating and in a sense almost drinking you know right but eating in the presence of god you know they're, they're doing that representatively as the ultimate picture of what we are going to be doing as god's people you know think about it going back to when god made the covenant with israel in exodus 24 you might remember we looked at that uh, sermon a few weeks ago what was the end goal of that is the representatives of israel eating and drinking in the presence of god they did it representatively. They're representing that ultimately through Christ, all of God's people are actually going to go up the mountain into the presence of God and eat and drink in his presence. Okay, so this idea of sharing, I think, is, is a wonderful picture of, of that provision. And it gets 
into what we've looked at today, you know, this idea of being God being a living sacrifice. He's basically just sharing. Through his sharing, other people experience life. God wants us to do the same thing. And here we get the priests modelling that as well, don't we? Okay, a particular piece of meat, it belongs to a particular priest, but he shares it with the members of his family. Okay. Life-giving sacrifice. Yeah, nice picture. Mm. Yeah, definitely. 